is Melchizedek, or Melchizedek, but we'll talk about that tonight, but um, as, just to start off, we'll just pray really quick, and ask that the Lord be with us tonight, and we'll go from there, okay? Lord, thank you for this night, and thank you for the blessing that you give us to dive into your word, to dive into the deeper meanings, and just like you told the disciples that you have bread to eat that they know not of, you have places to go that they know not of, Lord, be, become that mystery to us tonight. And even though there may, may still be some of the mystery that we're trying to unfold through Scripture, Lord, let your Spirit lead us and guide us into all truth. We believe that that's in the Word. We believe that that is in the eternal Logos that we hold, that we read, but not just the physical word that we read on the page, but the word that you are, the Logos that you became, the Logos that became flesh and dwelt among us. So, Father, tonight we're praying and we're believing that we'll understand these hidden meanings, these deeper meanings that can help us become better people, better believers, and help us further the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray tonight. Amen. Again, thanks you, thank you everybody for being here. But uh, something that I've been looking through and reading, again, I, uh, I, have, I have a couple of these Bibles. And Pastor gave me both of these Bibles because they're, they're very special to him. It's just a special type that he uses. It's a Thomas, or excuse me, a Nelson Bible. And just the way, compact, whatever, you know, it just, it just works. And there was something about it that he had a long time ago and he said he just picked it up and he had gotten it as a gift for somebody else. And he said, I just started reading it and reading it and reading it and I just couldn't put it down. All of a sudden, you know, it's, it's marked up. There's, there's writing in it. There's highlighter. There's everything in it. He said, well, I can't give it to this guy now. So he kept it. And then he bought a box of them, just like pastor would do. He bought a box of these, little, of these Nelson Bibles. So he's sort of selective with how he, he does it. And he gave me this Bible back, uh, I think now, uh, maybe he wrote a date in here. I didn't actually look. But um, this Bible has been deeply loved. This was in 2005, uh, in February 17th of 2005, he gave me this Bible. And that was, uh, that was a year before I was licensed here at the church. So there's, there's a lot that goes into this Bible, and there's a lot of, you know, now, you know having, having two daughters, it's, it's, uh, it's been dropped a lot as well. It's been to Nigeria with me. It's been, you know, I've preached all over the, uh, the, all over North South Carolina and different states, and it's missing Genesis one, um, which, you know, it's, it's missing a few pages. But there's a lot of notes in here. There's a lot of highlighting. There's a lot of underlining and notes that I start reading through it again, and it just it revivifies some of those sermons that I've heard you know there's notes in here from from people that I've, I've sat over here and watched them preach sat over here and they are just wherever and so just going back through this old Bible and some of the things in here and the reason that I even started to go through it again is that we've looked at a lot of these stories we've looked at a lot of our you know like the the Abrahamic stories the you know Isaac uh, Ishmael Jacob we've gone through a lot of those Daniel all of these these typical stories that we know and that we've heard for a long time, and really 
a big reason that I go through a lot of those stories is for the girls because they want to have a Bible story every night before they go to bed. And that's kind of been a tradition of ours for Hadley is 10 now, Tegan is 6. So at least for, uh, at least for uh, as long as Tegan's been born, we've done that. And Hadley, it's always been a thing with her. So it's been quite a few years. And I'm kind of getting to that point where we're, we're rehashing stories again. We're telling, retelling stories that they've heard many and many times. So I'm trying to find, you know, is there a different way to say this? Is there a better way to say this? But it's no different than any time that we look at a lot of these stories. We go back to the God of the Bible and we say, is there anything else here? Is, have I mined everything out of this? And it's like what Paul said, any man that thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought. So if we think that we've, we've gotten all of the meaning out of these stories, that you've, you've taken that sponge and you've squeezed everything out of it, no, I, I guarantee you there's still more in there. And that's exactly, that's probably a pretty good example because you'll do your dishes, you squeeze it, and then there's, there's suds that come out of there. You squeeze it again, there's suds that come out. There's things that are in there that you can't get it all out in one pressing. And it's the same way the comparison of the pressing is the same way with the oil and the wine that there's, when, when John wrote that in Revelation, and he wrote that, they would, that you wouldn't hurt the oil or the wine, that there's, there's still a pressing and there's still more to be squeezed out of us. And I think there's still more to be squeezed out of our church and our ministry and the words and, and all of the things that we've studied over the years. And in the, you know, th this church has been here for, what, I mean, 30, 35 years now. And for the amount of time that there's been lots and lots of truth and we still continue to walk through all of that. I think that's what makes it beautiful, and that's what makes the scripture that much more worth diving into. Um, but something that, I, a story that I, I kept coming back to, and that I kind of keep coming back to over and over, is a, uh, is a story of Melchizedek, or Melchizedek. And just as mysteriously as he arrives in Abraham's life, he is just as mysteriously gone. And you hear nothing else about him until you get to the book of Psalms. Again, one chapter in Psalms. You hear nothing else about him until you get to the book of Hebrews. Then all of a sudden, there's, it's, it's as if the book of Hebrews was written about Melchizedek. And you're kind of thinking, well, you know, what is it about this guy that makes Paul, is who we pretty much assume is the one that wrote the book of Hebrews, that what in the world is it about this man that would cause you to write Chapter 5, bring him up. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and then get to the conclusion of everything that he's saying. He says, well, this is the point of everything that I'm saying in chapter 9. And he concludes his thesis from chapter 9 until about chapter, the end of chapter 10, and then in chapter 11 begins to speak about faith and begin to speak about the kingdom in chapter 12 and to have kindness towards one another and sort of gives us that pastoral view of how we take this truth that he's just given. And this wild thing that he just unlocked for the Hebrew people and the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew religion and how that relates to our everyday life, how that relates to fulfilling the kingdom in the earth. But the story, at least for Melchizedek or Melchizedek, I'm, I'm probably going to say it five, at least those two different ways, uh, with the southern in me or the scholar in me, you name, you, I'll let you decide. Um, Genesis 12 is kind of where this story begins. In Genesis 12, it begins with the Lord speaking to Abraham 
First in chapter 11, he goes through all of the generations that lead up to the man Abraham and how Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, his son, Haran, his son's son, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son's Abraham, his son Abraham's wife, and they went forth with them in from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Before this happens, but that leads us up to chapter 12, that there is this moment in Abram's, or Abram at this point, there's this moment in Abram's life where everything about him begins to change. The Bible says, and if you go fast forward all the way to the writings of Paul, said that Abraham was chosen because God imputed or encountered to him righteousness because of his faith, that he was a man that would believe God, and because he would believe God, that was imputed to him for righteousness. That Abraham did not do anything to earn his righteousness. He did not do anything to earn a right standing with God. It's the simple fact that God saw a man in which would believe anything that God told him to do. And that's what changed the trajectory of Abraham's life. It takes him from being Abram to Abraham. There's so many archetypes and stories to go through in the story of Abram going into Abraham. And I still, even going into the story of Melchizedek, it is still the story of Abraham. And going through these truths that we find in Melchizedek are also the same truths that are in the life of Abraham, and it's the same truths that relate to us today. So God speaks to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, tells him to get out of the land, get thee out of the country, and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto the land that I will show you. And I will, take th- and I will make thee a great nation. I will bless thee, make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now center on that for a moment and say that all the families of the earth will be blessed because of Abraham, because of God's faithfulness to Abraham. Not necessarily Abraham's faithfulness to God, but it's God saying, I will bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Not, there's not a contingency on that where he says that if you do everything I tell you to do and you follow everything I tell you to follow and you do it to a T, then all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now God chose Abram to be the conduit to which God would bless the earth. And that is precisely what happened. If you take the lineage of Abraham and you go all the way to Matthew 1 and 1, it says that Jesus is the generation of Abraham and David. Because of Abraham, we have a David. Because of David, we have a Jesus. Because of Jesus, we have eternal life. That's something to say amen about. That's something to be excited about. That's something to rejoice over because through Abraham, all the nations of the earth were blessed because it led us to a greater priest, Jesus Christ. I'm getting way ahead of myself. But let's, so let's go back to the story. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. The problem with this is that Abraham takes his wife and instead of going to the land that God promises him, it says he travels south and then he travels even further south and then travels even further south until finally he lands himself in Egypt where he ends up in a place where there's a king to which he feels this inferiority. And when he gets to Egypt, He's there and he lies. 
is they ask him, was this your wife? And he says, no, Sarah, she's my sister. So whether that's Abraham dealing with his own inferiority, that here's a man that, I, you know, he's 70 at this point. It says uh, that uh, his father was 275. Uh, it said in here, I just I read it earlier today, of what age Abraham was. 70 and 5 years old in verse 4. That, uh, and Lot went with him, and Abram was 70 and 5 years old when he departed from Haran. So here's a 75-year-old man who's lived in his father's house this entire time. He's lived under his father's influence this entire time. So it's very easy to say that Abram is a late bloomer. I think we can all agree on that. That at 75 years old, you're finally making your journey out into the world. You're finally stepping out into the deep and doing something that you've never done before or you know, trying to, to, to stretch yourself beyond your current ability. And here he is at 75 doing something and doesn't tell us exactly what the age of the king or the pharaoh of Egypt doesn't tell us what his age is. It doesn't tell us what his influence is. But just based on our own research through history, that anybody of any status in Egypt had extreme wealth and had extreme amounts of, of influence within that country, within just them as a tribe, even if you take it down to the point of them being a tribe in certain areas, of the influence and the power that they had. So this is Abram's first experience in coming into, um, coming up to a man that's better than him and a man that he tries to compare himself to. So there's fear, there's trepidation. And what it does, it leads him to the point to lie. And then it's not until God intervenes for him that God reveals it to the Pharaoh that this is not Abraham's sisters, this is his wife. Because the Pharaoh was about to take this woman and make her his wife. And he said, you know, you could have really truly cursed me. And the Pharaoh, when he finally confronts Abram, he said, you could have really messed up my life and your own when you could have just been honest up front. So again, it's, it's just a lesson in what's the better thing to do. It's better to tell the truth. Something that Jordan Peterson talks about. I, you know, I know that we, we talk about that kind of often, but it's just a simple thing of tell the truth or at least don't lie. That's what his, his statement is. And well, the truth is just don't just tell the truth. <laughs> tell the truth or at least don't lie. It's the, uh, you know, like when, uh, you know, your mother says, you know, does this dress look good on me? And it really does. Well, you know, try to find a nice way to say it, you know, so at least don't lie. I think that's what he's getting to with that. So it, with Abram right here, he lies. But at the same time, it, we kind of start seeing this part of Abram where he, he just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to get it. And at 75 years old, for him to finally be leaving his father's house, after his father dies, there's still something there that he still just doesn't get it. He doesn't get life. He's one of those guys that you kind of look at him and say, man, he's got all this potential. He's got all this capability, but there's something about him that he just doesn't seem to get it because God tells him to go to Canaan instead of going to Canaan, which is some, somewhat northeast from where he was, he goes south. Here's the complete opposite direction. Ends up in Egypt, which is mostly southeast, southwest, of where Canaan is. So it's finally from there, after he has this situation at the end of chapter 12, he begins to travel back up. And again, still, after God tells him to leave his father's house, leave his kindred, leave his family, he still brings Lot with him. That was not the, that was not the plan of God. But still, takes him with him. Here goes Abraham, trekking back up towards Canaan. He gets up to the land, and that's where we kind of get into chapter 13. Uh, Retravels 
uh, when he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel into the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai unto the place of the altar which he had made there at first and there Abram called on the name of the Lord finally after all of his trouble after everything that starts going wrong he's like okay well I'm going to call on the name of the Lord now which is exactly what we all do and don't tell me that you don't because we we all do that everybody gets in that place where all right God told me to go north and I went south I, God told me to do this but I did that so finally, he, you know, God saves him out of trouble, and now he's in the place. All right, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. I'm back in the place where I initially had my tent, which was in Bethel. And Bethel means house of God. So he's finally made it back to the house of God. And that's the truth that happens to us so many times that we, we go out, we do our own thing, we come back, and we finally make it back to the house of God. We finally make it back to where we feel that we are now the dwelling place of God. That's essentially what we're getting to when we get to the place of the house of God. Not so that there's a comfort, obviously, that when we've gone out, we've done our own thing, and we come back to a church, come back to the people of God, and they pray with us, and we feel that comfort, and we feel the peace of God. But it's the point of making myself the dwelling place of God, where I become the Bethel, where I become the house of God. And that's what happens with nearly every one of us, and we come to a state of repentance, and we come back to God, we come to a place where we begin to realize again that I, all along, that I've been the dwelling place of God, and I've went the opposite direction of where he told me to go, but I'm still the dwelling place of God. There's still something about me that God is interested in that makes him want to live inside of me and to hear my prayer, to hear my supplication, and to hear my contemplation, not hear my request as if I put a quarter in the gumball machine so that I can see the gumball spin all the way down and it well man well that's not the color that I wanted I wanted the pink one this is the yellow I don't like banana flavored that's that's not what God's not the cosmic gumball machine God's not the cosmic you know you, you put your, your your request in and then the genie you rub the lamp and then all of a sudden you get what you want that's not what he is but he's in with, within us to hear our contemplation a sanctuary is a sacred place it's a sacred space for me to open up my heart, for me to open up the depths that are within me. It's not this place where I go to just where, we, you know, where you hear those, those stories about just making your request known unto God. And he's faithful and just to do that. So it's, yes, God will answer those prayers, but for the most part, it's the moment of contemplation. And it's not until Abraham begins to have these moments of contemplation, these moments where he begins to think through his life, that he's, he begins to have these realizations that God is taking him somewhere. And that this man who was a pagan, who didn't know God, and in the land where Abram lived, there were many gods that were served. And in the time frame in history that he lived in, more than likely the story that he must have heard, must have heard probably the most was the Epic of Gilgamesh one of the oldest stories known to human civilization. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh is this mighty godlike being who lives his life doing exactly whatever he wants to do. He takes men's wives, he murders, he kills, and he goes unchallenged for the most of his life until finally there is another that is just like him, but the difference in the one that's created to combat him is that this one begins... That uh, I'm trying to remember his name now. It's a funny name. Anyway, this other creature that is created 
he grows out in the woods and then travels like an, like an animal, travels with the gazelles, and then finally reaches this state of realization and maturity. And he's the one that goes and challenges Gilgamesh. And they finally fight, and then it's, that's the thing, that combat, that battle is what makes Gilgamesh realize that he's done nothing but rape and plunder and pillage his entire life, and now he wants to be set on a brighter course. He wants to follow a better path. And he takes this newfound brother that he has, and uh, it's uh, Enikdu, I think is his name, or uh, Enkidu, that's his, Enkidu, that's his name, Enkidu. Enkidu, it's Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And now Gilgamesh fights with Enkidu. He, they, they never really come to a, they never really come to a, a, whoever wins the battle. There's no real winning. It's the first time that Gilgamesh has ever been challenged to the point where he cannot defeat this enemy. And so he finds out, or he, he begins to call Enkidu his brother. He said, now I want my brother to go with me to face these giants. Let's go and defeat all of these other enemies that have tried to come into our land. And so he finds a deeper meaning. He finds a deeper purpose. And for Abraham to, in my mind, for Abraham to have heard that story, I think it's inevitable that Abram heard the story of the epic of Gilgamesh and being challenged in his own mind, being challenged in his own thinking, because we get to the point here later on in this chapter where it says that God himself appears to Abraham. And so one greater than him comes upon him. And it becomes a story that lasts not just to his son, Isaac, but it lasts through his grandson, Jacob, that when Jacob is wrestling with this one that's greater than him at the forge of Jabok, Jabok means to pour oneself out or to pour forth, that he becomes entangled with this man or with this being, with this angel, whatever, he, whatever it is in that moment, he's wrestling with God himself. And he finally realizes that there's one that's greater than me that's come upon me but neither come to a point of where neither one of them are going to win this fight. And it's even God himself that has to punch Jacob in his thigh or in his leg to, to give him a limp so that he can escape, so that he can get away. It's very similar how these stories sort of lay out, but the truth remains the same, that when power goes unchecked or when power goes, un, uh, that's, that's probably the best way to say that, when power goes unchecked, then it runs muck. And we, I mean, we experience that in our political climate that we have right now. When power goes unchecked, they do whatever in the world they want to do. They rape, they pillage, it doesn't matter what it is, just like Gilgamesh did. But when someone rises up that is just as powerful as they, that they cannot defeat, same way with Jacob fighting this person, it ends up changing him completely, that he's no longer Jacob at the end of that meeting. He's no longer Jacob at the end of that battle. He's no longer Jacob at the end of that confrontation with something that he cannot overcome. But in that confrontation, it changes him. That he's no longer Jacob, now he is Israel. Because he fights like a prince. And he cannot be overcome. It's the same thing, a very similar thing that happens with Abram in his life. That he's lived with his father for 75 years. And it's not until something happens where he has a confrontation with himself a confrontation with who he is or who he has become or even really further who he has not become in 75 years of his life and he has this confrontation with himself and it's not just that it's the myriad of confrontations that he begins to have in his life that leads him and changes who he is and again you have somebody who's once named Abram 
changes who he is. Now he's named Abraham. You have Jacob, who's changed from a confrontation into being Israel. We have that in our own life. I don't know what it's going to be that changes your name or changes your story or changes the trajectory of your life, but I can almost guarantee it's going to be out of a confrontation. That's such a typical story in the Bible. That's such a typical story in all of the other, uh, myth- mythologi- in other mythological stories that are out there that it's, a, it's, it's usually confrontation. And the reason these mythological stories and these scriptural stories and these archetypal stories and these allegorical stories, the reason they lead us to these points of confrontation, the same way that it led Jesus to his point of confrontation, even in his own soul, that he goes to the garden and he's praying and he said, God, is there any way that this cup can pass? Is there any way out of this? And it's so intense that it makes him sweat drops of blood that in his own moment of confrontation with his own soul that even the Son of God is trying to find a way to get out of this. That the person that was the express image of the glory of God, we're talking about Jesus, the brightness of his glory, the logos, the word made flesh, that even he is trying to find a way to get out of this because he recognizes something within his own soul that he did not confront when he was in the desert facing the demons, facing the devil or the shaitan that he was facing, and he was tempted those days and those nights. Throw yourself off of this building. The angels will surely come and get you. Turn this stone into bread. Tell the Father to do this. Tell the world to do this. All of these things. And finally, he has that moment of confrontation within himself that leads him to a greater purpose. And that greater purpose blesses the rest of us. So there's the archetypal portion of it, but there's also this kingdom portion of it that I can't help but feel the Holy Ghost on when I talk about the thing that Abraham did and the thing that David did and the thing that it led to Jesus doing for every single one of us that opens up a doorway in the kingdom of God so that we can share this life one with another. But it also brings me to a point of realization when I'm feeling the Holy Spirit and I feel the Holy Ghost and we come to church and we we get excited, we jump, we feel God moving inside of us. There's also this, this very sober realization that when after I feel this moment of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to walk out of here, I'm going to walk out of these doors and I'm more than likely going to face confrontation. And this confrontation, I shouldn't shy away from it. And that James would say, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Count it all joy when there are many different things that are trying to combat you. Count it all joy when there are thousands of people that are standing against you. Count it all joy. And it's difficult to count it all joy when you know that there's going to be confrontation that leaves you once you walk, that awaits you when you walk out these doors. But if we follow the story of Melchizedek, there's something that happens between Melchizedek and Abram that gives him something, that gives him this supernatural life that lets him survive the battle that he's going to survive, gives him the life that he's going to have after he's fought an intense battle. Genesis 13, God meets up with him. Now in chapter, in, in chapter 13 and verse 5, Lot was also with Abraham. They had flocks, had herds, had tents. In verse 6, and the land was not able to bear them. So at least he got something right. He's made so much wealth somehow, whether it's through the inheritance of his father, it doesn't say how this happened. But this guy that doesn't seem to get it somehow fell into a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of land, or a whole bunch of flocks, a whole bunch of tents, a whole bunch of herds. 
insomuch that the land could not hold it all. So he tells Lot, you pick where you want to live. I'm going to pick where I'm going to live. We're going to divide our, uh, we're going to divide our assets. You take half, I'll take half. You go over here, I'll go over here. Wherever you choose, I'll go the opposite direction. It says there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's cattle and the herdmen of Lot. And the Canaanite and the Perizzites dwelled in the land, and Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we will be brethren. And so Lot, in verse 10, lifted up his eyes and beheld the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zor. And Lot chose him all of the plain of Jordan. Of course he did. Of course he did. He's, he's just one of those guys. That you, it, that's just what Lot makes me think of. That, um, in our business at work, we'll have, uh, you know, you, you've got, because uh, I, I mean, I was one of those people. I was a salesman. I was one of our, one of our uh, I was an outside sales rep, and you start looking at accounts that are in here. It's like, oh, well, that account does. Oh, okay, you start typing. Oh, that one does like $100,000. I want that account. I want that. And, you know, you, you don't have to do much work. You, you know, they're going to rent with us no matter what. I want that account. That's what Lot makes me think of. It makes me think of those guys that we, we would handpick and say, no, nah, I don't want that account. They do like $2,000 a year. They don't even rent anything with us. Like, nah, I don't want to do that one. The reason they don't rent with us is because nobody calls them. <laughs> That's the point. You got to work. You got to work the account to make them rent with you. You got to go and call them. They got to have somebody's phone number. They don't even have a business card from anybody at this company. And you know, so you're expecting them to rent with you. But that's the, type of, that's the type of person that Lot makes me think of. He sees the well-watered plain of Jordan. And he says, okay, I'll take that one. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So he goes ahead, and there's nothing in these chapters right here that are, that, that's in here by mistake. If you read through Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. There's nothing really in this story that's here by mistake. It's kind of like there was a uh, scholar that wrote a lot about the book of John. John, book of John is very similar to this. And he said it's, it's kind of like the novel that's written. And if in the beginning of chapter 2, the novel says that there was a, a rifle that was above the fireplace. And he said, you better guarantee that that's going to come in handy in chapter 5. That knowledge that there's a rifle above the fireplace in chapter 2 is going to come in handy in chapter 5. That's the way that this book is. That's the way Genesis 12, 13, and 14 is. Is that If, if you mention something right here, you guarantee it's going to come in handy later on in this story. Same thing with John. Same thing with Revelation. And you can say that about a lot of the Bible. So he goes ahead and lays out the story that Sodom is a very wicked place, a very evil place. And the Lord said unto Abraham after that, Lot was separated from him, lift up thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land, in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. This is what Abraham does. Then Abraham removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. There is no 
Indication that Abraham walked neither the length nor the breadth of the land that God told him to walk through. Instead, he builds an altar and he gives thanks to God. That's great. Glad that you did that. Glad that you're recognizing that this blessing came from God. But God told you to do something yet again. And there are these minor points where instead of going north, he goes south to Egypt. Where instead of leaving his family, he takes Lot with him. Where instead of walking through the length and the breadth of the land that God had promised him, he builds an altar. Again, some things that you just don't understand. It seems like he gets it, but he doesn't get it. Don't know how he got his wealth. More than likely, it came from the inheritance of his father, who was 275 years old. And for Lot to live with him those last 75, I mean, for Abram to live with him those last 75 years of his life, more than likely, all of those tents, all of those herds, and all of those flocks came from the work of his father. And now he's the inheritor of something that he did not earn, which makes this story even more significant because of how Abraham comes into a promise from God. That God picks Abraham, being a man who had faith. Not that, not that he was accomplished. Not that he was educated. Not that he knew the depths or the riches of God as being Elohim or being Yahweh. None of that came to Abram's mind whatsoever because he lived in a land where they worshipped a myriad of gods. And the Bible even says that Abram was a pagan. He didn't worship God. He didn't know God. But God revealed himself to him. So here we have a man that inherits land, that inherits herds, flocks, and tents that he didn't earn, that he didn't work for, that he didn't have in his own ability to even, to even earn it. And here he receives it the same way that he receives the greatest promise to ever been given to a man ever in history that God chooses him and says, through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Through you, there's going to be a Messiah that will come, that will become the high priest over all of the nations of the earth, and there'll be a sacrifice that's greater than the sacrifice that I'm going to make with you, Abraham. That there's something greater that happens in a covenant that takes place in Abraham, for Abraham, and not just for him, but for his generations. We'll get to that in a minute, too. So it says, Arise and walk through the land, the length of it, and the breadth of it. And it appears that he does neither of those things. I took a sip of coffee. That means I'm going to talk faster. So, then we get to chapter 14, and the novel begins to unfold a little bit more. Uh, these kings here gives a little bit of the story that there are four kings from the east and five kings that live in Canaan. Remember, Canaan is the land that God promised to Abraham and his generation. Four kings in the east have been ruling over these five kings in Canaan for 12 years. And the five kings in Canaan, I might have that backwards, four or five, one or the other. Four, there's four on one side, five on the other. I know I wrote that in my notes here. I could go through here, but anyways, there's four kings to the east, five kings, yeah, there's, uh, there's five kings to the east and uh, four kings, that's what it was, four kings in Canaan. And they've been ruled over all these 12 years. They've paid their taxes all these 12 years. And they said, finally, we've had enough. So here's the battle royale where nine kings bring their armies together and they're going to fight. And the kings of Canaan get their, uh, get their spoils back. One of those kings of Canaan was the king of Sodom, which was a land where, as we've already heard in the story, this is where Lot has already pitched his tent. This is where Lot has 
put his eyes on. There's something about the land of Sodom that is so attractive to him. And he's living in this land where there's plenty. He's living in this land where there's water. The plain of Jordan, it's a fruitful place. There's something about it. So now here the story begins to unfold as there's a king of Sodom who's one of these four or five kings that's about to defeat and fight against these other five kings from the east. They have this battle royale. The nine kings come together and the kings of Canaan defeat the kings of the east. But in the middle of all this, Lot gets captured because again, Lot cannot keep his eyes off of something that's not his. Lot is that guy. He sees the fruitful plains in Jordan. He sees the water. He sees that it's an easy place to bring his herds. It's an easy place for his flocks to graze. I'm going to take that land. And so he has that from Abram. Now, here he is. He sees this great battle between these nine kings. And wow, look at all the stuff they've got. So he somehow gets himself involved in something where he shouldn't have been involved and ends up captured. Once this happens... The Bible said that Abram took 318 men, formed his own army of his, what if it's his herdsmen or his neighbors or people that he was in covenant with. He took 318 men and it said he chased them northward all the way to Damascus. And it said to Dan, but also past Dan to Damascus. If you follow your map from where he was in the plains of Mamre, this confrontation forced him to do the thing that God told him to do in the first place. God said, run the length and the breadth of the land that I'm promising you. And he didn't do it. He made, a, he made a, an altar before the Lord and gave thanks to God and sat still. So here's Abram sitting in his tent, finds out that his nephew Lot has been captured. And then here he goes with 318 men with an army, chasing these four or five kings down so that he can rescue his nephew Lot. And when he does so, it says that he chases them so far north that he chases them out of Dan and into Damascus to the northernmost part of the land of Canaan. So here we are again where confrontation has forced him to do the thing that God told him to do in the first place. He has a confrontation with the king in Egypt. He has a confrontation that forces him to realize something about himself, that he is a liar. He has this confrontation that makes him realize that he has an inferiority complex. That when he comes face to face with a man that's greater than him, comes face to face with a man who is not 75 years old and lived with his dad for 75 years and never accomplished anything and all of the herds and the flocks and the tents that he has, that he inherited all of that stuff. That there's, here's this guy, in, this guy in Egypt that has earned everything that he's got. He's younger than me. He's stronger than me. He's more powerful than me. He's more influential than me. And here's Abraham carrying around all of this wealth that he didn't earn. And he's got this problem in his own soul that says, I I'm not good enough to be here, so I've got to lie. I've got to come up with a way to save my own butt. It's, I guess try and get out of here with, with as much as I can. So he lies about his wife. He lies about it comes with this confrontation and here God delivers him out of that situation and here he is yet again in another. God tells him to walk the length, walk the breadth of the land that he's promised him, not just for him but for his generation, for those that he will have and he says that word forever, for thy seed forever. This is a land that I will give you forever. So there's a little bit of importance on this moment in your life, Abram. There's a little bit of, of there's a lot more skin in the game right now. It's not just you. God is making it clear to him, I'm interested in you, but it's not just you I'm interested in. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed out of you, so there's something that I need you to do. So this confrontation forces him to run the, run the length, 
of the land of promise. He finally does it. He rescues, rescues his nephew, and they come back down, and they end up going through this town. It says they go through, it's uh, chapter 14, verse uh, 15. 14 is where it says they went to Dan. 15 is where it says on the left hand of Damascus. Uh, and he brought back all the goods in verse 16. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And in verse 17, this king arrives. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the, from, <clears throat> after his return from the slaughter. You want to pronounce that? Chedolomir and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba which is the king's dale so it says the, the king of Sodom came out to meet him but in the very next verse switches gears almost as to say as if to say that this is happening simultaneously that in the exact same moment that the king of Sodom comes out to meet him and Melchizedek or Melchizedek king of Salem or Shalom, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Salem, actually a hyphenated word for Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is the king and the priest of what would become the house or the seat of God in the land of Canaan, in Jerusalem, the city of dual peace. This king, who we find out later in the book of Hebrews, has neither beginning of days nor end of life, but it says that he's made after the power of an endless life. I just feel the Holy Ghost just saying that phrase. Made after the power of an endless life. And the king of Sodom comes to him, and the king of, the king of Salem comes to him. It says he's a priest of the Most High God, but it says he brought forth bread and wine, and he blessed him, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hands. He's referring Elohim, the word that he's using. And he gave him tithes of all. So there was something about this meeting that makes Abram say, I want to give something to you. We'll get deeper into that in a moment. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. So here's the king of Sodom that sees Abraham has taken 318 powerhouse men. That's what I would imagine they would be. And these 318 men have chased us all the way from the southern end of Canaan, all the way to the northern end of Canaan, into Damascus. There's something special about these guys. Is it so all that stuff that you took, you can have it. Let's just make a deal. Let's trade. You take all that stuff with you. I'll just take those 318 dudes. I'm going to add them to my army so that when these kings from the east get all, you know, hot and bothered again and they want to start taxing us again and they want to attack us again, then I've got a little 318-man army, this little militia, and we're going to be just fine. We got a deal. Shake on it. We're good. Abraham says, raises his hand and says, basically, I swear to God. Literally, it's, it's the, the Hebrew way of saying, I swear to God, I don't want anybody to ever think that I was made rich off of anything from you. He said, all the way down to the shoelaces, take it all. Take the shoe latchets, take the shoes themselves, take whatever. I Take it all, I don't want any of it. 
because I don't want it to ever be said that I made any money off of you and your wickedness, your wicked kingdom, your wicked ways of life. So he gives everything back to Sodom, all the spoils, all the spoils to the king of Sodom. And he said that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet and that I will not take anything that is thine lest thou shouldest say I have made Abram rich save only that which the young men have eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. So they're obviously going to keep the food that they already ate. So no giving that back. At least I don't think he wants the, the result of how you do give that back. So they're going to keep the food they already ate. He said, but the rest of it, take it with you. I don't have anything to do with you. I don't want it to ever be said that I made a dime off of anything that was yours. So he gives it all back. So here's Abram standing up for something that's true. Here's Abram getting to a point where he's realizing through this confrontation that I'm going to do the right thing. Finally, he has the moment where he lies to the king of Egypt. He has the moment where he disobeys God and he bring, or just, just the minor ways in which he disobeys God. He does all of the things that God tells him not to do and he does it, but here he has this moment through confrontation that leads him to say, at least I know that you're wicked. At least I know that you are somebody that I don't want to have anything to do with. So he casts the king of Sodom out. He doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And he partakes in the communion that the king and priest of Salem, or of Jerusalem, that Melchizedek gives him. And there's something about that moment. There's something about after facing the battle that he has faced, taking the 318 men, traveling the hundreds of miles north all the way to Damascus and coming all the way back down with the spoils, with his nephew Lot, bringing all of that back. And I'm sure he's tired. I'm sure he's exhausted. But even in his exhaustion, he's still thinking clearly enough, almost to the point that you could say, hey, it looks like Abram is starting to get it. It looks like he's starting to realize something. It looks like he's coming into his own. It looks like he's beginning to develop some form of his own character now that he's not just riding the wave of whatever it was from his father, but he's coming into his own now. And that's the story of all of our lives, is that we live finally through confrontation, coming into our own, coming into our own being, coming into the state of our own belief and having our own character of knowing what we will do when the moment is there knowing what we will do in the moment of temptation, knowing what we will do when it comes down to the point of my character and have my roots of my tree gone down deep enough. Have I gotten to the point that I'm a tree that's truly planted by the rivers of living water? Am I going to be one of those trees that the leaves that come from here for the healing of the nation, or are you going to be a tree that does not bear fruit? And that is the significance of the life of Melchizedek, that he is a priest which there's fruit that comes from whatever he does. He sees that there's something great about Melchizedek. What is it that he sees? In Hebrews chapter 7 and 4, Paul begins to ask these questions. Now consider how great this man was. Unto whom spilled water on me. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abram, Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, Levi who receive the office of the priesthood, 
have a commandment to take the tithe of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Making a point here that someone that was not from the loins of Abraham, who was not from the generation of Abraham, received something that someone that descended from Abraham would force people to give. They said they didn't make, they didn't ask like how we do here at church and we hold the baskets up here and pastor always makes the point to say, we'll receive your tithe. We're not going to take it from you. We'll receive it. And then here you are, the generations of those from Abraham, not far removed, Levi, would not request for you to bring it. They would take it from you. But here's Abram offering it to someone that did not come from his loins, offering it to someone who was a king and a priest in this land that they don't know anything about. Only thing they know is that this is a land that God had promised to Abraham and his generations. So how is it that God would do something or that this, whatever this king Melchizedek would do something so wonderful and marvelous that it would make Abraham give something not out of oblation, not out of any obligation, but he's giving it willingly to this man. What is it about him? We've sort of went through a lot of the archetypal portion here in this hour, almost hour that we've been going through this. So, I mean, we'll get into some of the other meat of this as well. Let's go to Hebrews 5 and sort of go through a little bit of this about Melchizedek. What it is about the ministry of Melchizedek. And we, we won't have time to go through an entire an entire thought on, on everything that is Melchizedek. That's, that's, that's a lot to unpack, even in these three chapters that he's mentioned a lot of in the book of Hebrews. But, sort of a spoiler alert, Melchizedek appears to be through a lot of, not just, and I'm not just talking about my study, this is something that is from, there are scholars all over the world that have looked into this and studied this, but it appears that Melchizedek is a theophany or Christophany, which is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament or appearance of Christ to someone. Because it only makes sense for it to be such a thing. If you go back through and you look at the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses is given the rules by which kings will rule, Moses tells them in the book of Deuteronomy that God doesn't really want you to have a king, but inevitably you're going to end up with a king just like the other nations because that's what you request. And they go through this entire series of, of rules, essentially, of what the king should have or shouldn't do. Can't add houses unto himself. Shouldn't add horses unto himself. Shouldn't add uh, wives unto himself. Shouldn't be a priest. But the king cannot be a priest. The king can be a prophet, but a king cannot be a priest. A priest can be a prophet, but a priest cannot be a king. And you find that throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. That there is only one person in the Old Testament who was both a king and a priest, and it was Melchizedek. In fact, if you follow the story of Saul, who Samuel finds him chasing donkeys, it gives another identification of his leadership style. That you have the difference in Saul who's out here with a, a stick chasing donkeys trying to get them to stop doing what they're doing. And you've got David who's a shepherd who's leading the sheep to still water. It's a difference in leadership style. You've got a guy that you know, cracks the whip and that's how he's going to try and get what he wants. And then you've got somebody like David who's going to take you and lead you to the place where you need to go. 
So here's Saul, the first king, who's head and shoulders. The Bible said he's, literally says he's head and shoulders above all the men of, of Benjamin. So Samuel takes him, anoints him. It's not more than just a few years later that Saul has in his head, we've got to fight the Philistines for whatever reason. There was no reason really at that time for him to go and chase down the Philistines, but they're about to go into battle and they're waiting on Samuel to come and offer up a sacrifice to them because Samuel was the prophet and he was the priest. So they're waiting on this man to come and offer a sacrifice on their behalf so that God will bless them before they go into battle. Saul keeps looking at his watch, gets impatient, and he says, you know what, forget it, I'm going to offer the sacrifice. As soon as he does it, here comes Samuel walking up and saying, what have you done? From that one moment, not all the other stuff that Saul does, not all the other stupid things that he gets himself into, but from that moment, that's the moment that God says, I've removed my spirit and my anointing from you. I can't trust you with this position any longer because you've taken something that is not yours. You are not to be a king and a priest. Fast forward all the way through to the uh, book of Isaiah when it talks about Uzziah. Uzziah was the greatest king ever of that time, ever of that lineage. And I believe he was a king of Judah, not Israel. Yeah, he was a king of Judah. So it means that he came from the line of David. Here's Uzziah who hears all of these prophecies from Isaiah that there's a Messiah that's going to come and he's going to deliver us and it's going to be the greatest thing that ever happens for us and he's going to be a king and a priest. Here's Uzziah. Uzziah was so, such a forward thinker that, you know, we, we see it in movies now, but it's, you know, the towers, the bell towers that they set up to warn if you're going to have an intruder. He was one of the first people to come up with that. But you have towers with lights or with bells or whatever it was that they would warn if there was another army that was coming in to invade. He was a genius. So he begins to hear all these prophecies from Isaiah and he hears all of these other, uh, all these other people that start talking about, well, may, hey, maybe it's Uzziah. Maybe Uzziah is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one. And he begins to hear all that, believes the hype, knowing that it's not him. So he, as a king, walks into the temple to offer sacrifice to God as a priest and God immediately gives him leprosy from head to toe because he did something that he knew he was not qualified to do. There was only one of those in the Old Testament. It was Melchizedek, and that person was a Christophany of Jesus Christ himself who was our consummate king and priest. He was our king and priest. And then, only then, only after Jesus being the king that he was and being the priest that he was that offered a sacrifice on our behalf that was greater than any sacrifice that could have ever been offered by any priest in the Judaic system. There's only one sacrifice that could have been offered and it was the sacrifice of his own body, that his body is broken in for us, that he offers the sacrifice of his own flesh before God to be the propitiation of the faith for every single one of us. That sacrifice alone rips the temple veil from top to bottom, making it a clear path for every one of us to be kings and priests now. So if Uzziah would have waited, if, if, if Saul would have waited until their change had come, that's what the scripture says, if you wait until your change has come and not get it run ahead of God and do the thing that you know you're not supposed to do, but you wait on God and even that confrontation that comes from within to say, I need to be patient, I need to wait, I need to do the thing and be faithful in the thing that God's called me to do. And at that point, the faithful thing that God wanted them to do would be the kings of Israel and Judah. 
That was the plan at the time. Be a faithful king. You're not called to be a priest. Be a faithful king. Abraham realizes that. And this character, this figure, gives him bread and gives him wine, has a celebration for him. The other king of Sodom is requesting something from him. Trying to make a deal, trying to bargain with him, trying to get an edge on him and get an edge on somebody else. And that was enough to make Abram realize that that's a character that he doesn't want to have anything to do with. So he goes with the king Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 5, he begins to talk a little bit more about Melchizedek and he starts off talking about the priesthood itself and how the priesthood is taken from men or is from among men, is ordained for men and the things pertaining to God they may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, who have compassion on the ignorant, on them that are out of the way, for that he himself is also compassed with infirmity. And then you fast forward all the way through. He talks about Aaron for a little bit, but then you get to the point of right here at verse 7. Actually, no, it's verse 6. And he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Here he's talking about Christ. Again, having a confrontation. It says that he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. What else does that sound like? Who else does that sound like? It sounds like every story in the Old Testament. It sounds like every influential character in the Old Testament that the things that he suffered are the things that taught him obedience. The things that he, was, that he voluntarily confronted are the things that changed him and made him into the man that he was. And not just the man that he was, but it said that Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. He's referencing the garden, by the way. He's referencing the moment where Jesus is in the garden praying, offering intense prayers and supplication, where his sweat becomes drops of blood from the, to the one, praying to the one that could save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience. Though he were a son already. Though he already knew his status with God, he already heard the voice of God come and the Spirit descend on him like a dove as he comes up out of the waters of Jordan and says, This is my Son, hear ye him. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This was his moment of realizing again who he is. Even though he knew that he was a son, he still had to learn obedience by the things which he suffered. And that is the thing that made him perfect and being made perfect he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called on God, called of God, and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again. What he's getting at here is they know the story of Melchizedek. He's, te he's teaching not to Gentiles, he's teaching to Hebrews. They know the stories of David. They know the stories of Enoch. They know the stories 
of Samson. They know all of those stories. You go to Hebrews 11 and it lists a lot of those stories. They've heard these stories their entire life since they were children. And he said, at this point in your life, you should be able to put the, put the, the dots together that Melchizedek was Jesus Christ, that we had a high priest come, somebody that we knew from all of our history when Saul went to offer sacrifice on behalf of his army that God took his anointing from him. When Uzziah as a king went to offer up sacrifice as a king that God slayed him with leprosy and here we have somebody that came into our life and was a king from the lineage of David. Here's a man who, follow, who, who followed perfectly in the line of David and he offered up a sacrifice of his own flesh. He was our king, he was our priest, and he's trying to get these people to see. Put the dots together. We already know these stories, Abraham, all the way here to this point of Jesus. And now here we are in 2021, we know these stories. We know these stories. And in a time when America alone, I'm, you know, I know that we talk a lot about a lot about that. It's, you know, God is not American. God is, is not from this world. God is God. God is who he is. God is his own being. So, you know, we try to force God into a, an American, even, a, you know, even go any deeper. We try to force God into a Republican uh, uh, bottle, and, you know, we've got Democrats that try to force him into a Democratic bottle, and that's, you know, God doesn't fit in any of that. You get to the book of Revelation, it says he takes the rod of iron and he breaks the clay pots. All the people that are in those pots are dispersed and they're mixed in amongst, amongst each other because God is the God of everybody. As much as I disagree with all of their politics, as much as I disagree with all of their agendas, as much as I disagree with everything that they're saying, God is still their God and God still loves them and I have to try and find a way to have peace with them and not be a peacekeeper but be a peacemaker. The Bible said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons of God. So if I'm going to truly be acting like a son of God, I've got to learn obedience through the things that I suffer. And sometimes the suffering comes from trying to make peace with somebody that doesn't want to make peace with you. Try to make peace with someone that doesn't want to make any doggone sense. <laughs> Scott likes that one. They don't make any daggum sense. Yeah. They don't make any sense whatsoever, but either way. So, uh, <laughs> He's trying to teach them something here. Well, we're, we're getting all the way into a little more than an hour, so I don't, don't want to burden your ears or your minds uh, too much. We'll fast forward a little bit to uh, a little bit out of chapter 7 in Hebrews. In chapter 7, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem. That's what his name means. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. And king of Salem, which is the king of peace, with, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. It means that he remains now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils. Fast forward, we already read some of this about the Levitical priesthood, but then fast forward into verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? It's a good question. For the priesthood being changed, there's made of necessity a change also of the law. What he's getting at is that we're doing away with that priesthood. 
There's a brand new priesthood. There's a brand new way of life that Jesus being the propitiation of our faith. Now, it's not just a priest. It's now a priest and a king together. That's the way that is being made for us. Made after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandments, but after the power of an endless life. That's Jesus Christ. That is our priesthood. Our priesthood is after the power of an endless life. But when you take those deep, theological even, or just you know, apocryphal stories, or this, just that statement right there out of Hebrews 7, 16, that there's a priest that's not made after the law, but there's a priest that's made after the power of an endless life. God, that's so deep. That's so deep. That's an ocean to dive into, that one verse. But the thing that gets us to that one verse are all the other archetypal stories that lead up to that. It's the moments of confrontation in Abraham's life. It's the moment of Abraham choosing between the king of Sodom or the king of Salem. It's Abraham making a point to say that I'm going to finally, I'm going to run the, run the length of this land that God has promised me. I'm going to confront the thing that God has told me to confront. I'm going to, I'm going to have this moment similarly like we, are, we already talked about where he, he heard the story of the epic of Gilgamesh and now here goes one that's unchallenged and finally there's a challenger. There's a challenger that meets him out here and now it leads him to a greater purpose and he says, this is my brother, let's go defeat giants together. Here's Abraham. He finally has his moment of confrontation that leads him to a greater purpose in his life and that greater purpose is to be the thing through which or the person through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that is an archetypal story that leads us all the way to the forefront of our faith in Jesus Christ who had his own confrontation, his own voluntary confrontation within his own soul, who made him a priest, not after the carnal law that he was under during that time in Judaic culture and history, but made him a priest after the power of an endless life. And now he is someone that sits on the right hand of majesty on high. He is the one that sits on the right hand of God, and he's a priest forever for our sake. And now, take it even further, what was the thing that Melchizedek offered to him? He offered him bread and offered him wine. The exact same thing that Jesus does at his very last supper with his disciples as a king and a priest in the same respect that Melchizedek does. He offers them bread and wine, but he tells them this is not just bread and wine. He says, this is my body. In John 6, he says, Verily I say unto you, He that believeth on me and hath everlasting, hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am that living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. When Jesus told them, I think it's in the book of Luke is this, the verse that I had written down. He told them that this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that is poured out for you. It's not a symbol that represents his body. 
somehow mysteriously, just as mysteriously as Melchizedek appears to Abram and offers him bread and wine after the battle of the kings, that all of a sudden, mysteriously, the bread that Jesus gives me is not just bread, but it's literally his body. It's his literal flesh coming into me and making me a part of him. It's not just wine that I'm drinking, but it's his blood that is getting inside of me and making me one blood and one flesh with him so that Hebrews would say that we are born of the same womb is the way that it's worded in Hebrews, or it's worded in the, in the Greek language, that he that were his brethren, he's not ashamed to call them brethren, is the way it's worded in King James, but it means born of the same womb, that I'm from the same womb of Jesus Christ, that he was able to take death itself and turn that tomb into a womb that we were all born out of. We're all born out of that death and we become brothers along with him that he's the first begotten of the father and in Romans 8 that it says that he's not just the only son of God but he would bring many sons into the kingdom and then you take that all the way to chapter 8 or in Romans 8 and 34 that it's saying who can stand against us or who, if somebody sets themselves against us for greater is he that is in us and it talks about Jesus being the one on the right hand of God. <coughs> Skip through some of this so I can make sure I try and cram some of this in these last few minutes. I want to read this portion, though. This was from um, uh, Dr. Everett, one of his books. And he compiles these verses together out of the book of John that compare with Jesus being that bread of life. And it's, it's, I, I love the way that he just, the way that he words it here. To me, it, you, you, I just love the way that he words it here. He says, Jesus emphatically declared himself to be the vine. We are the branches. John 15, 5. As we remain in him, we bear fruit. We are attached to him who is, who is life. John 1, 4. I think on that. That the thing that attracts Abraham to Melchizedek is that he's a ministry or priesthood that produces life. After he takes the bread and the wine, there's fruit that comes from him. It's from his own loins that his children begin to be produced. The deadness, of his, the deadness of his body comes back to life and all of a sudden he's able to have children again. So we're attached to him who is life, John 1, 4. On one occasion Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John 6, 48. To those mourning and weeping over their dead, he could say, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. 25. To those deprived of true waters and famished from thirst, he would say, come unto me and drink, John 7, 37. The result of this invitation is the flow of living waters. To those groping about in darkness, bewildered, oppressed, and frustrated, Jesus is the light of life, John 8, 12. To the living dead, he is eternal life made manifest, 1 John 5, 11. To the tribulated overcomer, he is the crown of life, Revelation 2, 10. Jesus is the fountain of the water of life flowing freely to the thirsty, in Revelation 21, 6 the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God, Revelation 2.7, and the book of life ready to be understood by all who are disgusted with the fictional treatises of Adam's dream world of sleep. Ah, that's good. He said, I'm going to read that again. Jesus is the fountain of the water of life flowing freely to the thirsty, the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God, and the book of life ready to be understood by all who are disgusted with the fictional treatises of Adam's dream world of sleep. The Melchizedek ministry produces life without apology. Produces life without apology. I had a quote that popped up randomly as a memory on, on Facebook that says, 
It was from Brendan Manning. And so I shared it the other day, but it was a Brendan Manning quote that says, no matter how much we huff and puff, we still can't find somebody that grace does not cover. As much as we want them not to cover, as much as we fight against it, as much as we try to have our moments of disagreement, we still cannot find somebody that grace cannot cover. And the thing about the Melchizedek ministry is that no matter what, it produces life. It produces life 100% unapologetically, but it comes to us in a, in a form of confrontation that says, will you accept this? Will you accept this grace? Will you accept this ministry? Will you accept this priesthood? Will you be a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek the same way Jesus Christ was? And that he's our forerunner that's gone in before us, rips the veil on our behalf, and then gives us the opportunity to be that king and priest that offers life unapologetically that now I've been offered the bread and the wine. I've been offered the body and the blood of Jesus. I've been made a part of him. Now, who have I made a part of him? Who have I offered his body unto? Who have I offered his blood to? Who have I brought in to the kingdom of God? Who have I gone to and said, now you can be a partaker of the same thing that I'm a partaker of. You can be a partaker of the same life that's living within me. Give them his body and give them his, give them his blood because you also are a king and a priest. But it takes us having that moment of voluntary confrontation with ourselves. Is there someone that I cannot reach? Is there someone to whom I cannot show grace? Is there someone to whom I cannot show forgiveness? Otherwise, we never really truly step into being like the Son of God and being able to rise above and sit at the right hand of majesty on high with him and be a true king that can rise above even our own thinking. I hope this has made a lot of sense to you. Um, I, I, we, could, we could talk about Paul when he wrote about communion in 1 Corinthians 11 and 10 and 1 Corinthians 1, 9 about no divisions being among you um, the reality of Jesus as the king and the fulfillment 1 Corinthians 15, 28 um, so we don't have to go into all that I don't, wanna, I don't want you to take up too much time of uh, on your night here, but um, I want to at least read this final portion here. Um, the priesthood of Melchizedek is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And this priesthood will never declare that the present physicality is redundant and can be scrapped, nor will he simply improve it perhaps by speeding up its evolutionary cycle but in a great act of power, the same power that accomplished Jesus' own resurrection. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, he will change the present body into the one that corresponds in kind to his own as part of his work of bringing all things into subjection unto himself. That is a true king and priest ministry that it's not just about offering up sacrifice on our behalf, but he brings into subjection even our own body, that now I'm being changed in the moment of a twinkling of an eye. It changes Abraham. With Abraham, he has this confrontation, and he has a confrontation not just with the priest, but with the king. It says that Melchizedek is a king and a priest, so it forces him into subjection, and he meets King Melchizedek, and when he sought, and the king of Sodom comes to him and says, give me this spoil or give me these people and you keep the spoils, he says, absolutely not. It's one of the most stern things 
that Abraham finally says, finally stands up for something in his life because he's now under the subjection of a king that has forced his will into something, has forced him into the subjection of being someone that will rule like him. Does that make sense the way I'm saying that? That finally, when you meet the true king and priest ministry, it's not just someone that offers sacrifice for you because that's what Melchizedek does. It gave him bread and wine offered sacrifice for him as a priest but also he met him as a king so it forces him in the moment of his voluntary confrontation that now it's forced him into the same subjection that a king would force in subjection over somebody and force him to be in the state of, of true character to force him to say now when the king of Sodom comes to him and says I know I don't I don't really want to have a deal I don't, I don't really want to do that but no he stands up strong he stands up bold as a lion all of a sudden he says, no, I don't even want, you can take the shoe latches. I don't care. I don't want any of this. I don't want anybody to ever say that I ever made a dime off of you. Take everything. Take it all. I don't have anything to do with you. He stands up for something because he's finally grown into being a man. He's finally grown into his maturity, but it's because he came face to face with a king and a priest. Came face to face with something that challenged him. That's the story of our life. We come face to face with this king and this priest now, and it doesn't only just change our character. It doesn't only just change our mindset about, about the world that we live around us and eradicating the evil that surrounds us all the time, but it puts even our own physicality into subjection unto the king and priest Jesus Christ that he will change my body the same way that it says in 1 Corinthians that I, I will be changed in the moment of a twinkling of an eye and my mortality will put on immortality, my corruption will put on incorruption and we will be changed. I will live. I will finally, finally have my, my death will be swallowed up by life that my mortality will be changed into immortality. There's something mysterious and wonderful and beautiful and marvelous that takes place when I come into the subjection of the true king-priest ministry of Jesus Christ. That there's something miraculous that takes place. Amen. Lord, thank you for this night and thank you for the souls of everybody that comes here to try and work out their own salvation. And for those that listen on the, the, uh, the videos, people that, that tune in and watch, well, thank you for everyone that, that faithfully attends and faithfully gives here at the church and gives their time. Lord, you're leading us to a greater being you're leading us to a greater purpose and as we follow you and your word becomes a light unto our feet and directs our path we become more and more clear of where you're taking us and even though we may feel that we're groping about in darkness you still are that light that leads us to a place of resurrection and lead us to a place of new life where all things have been made new in you so pray tonight for everyone that's listening and everyone that was able to listen to this in the future, that this word will penetrate our heart and that we'll be able to be changed even on that day in the moment, twinkling of an eye. In Jesus' name, amen.